0: Technically, technical difficulties. Good evening, everyone. And we take this opportunity to welcome all of those who are joining us today, whether in person or online. We take this opportunity to welcome you to our second installment of the series entitled The Passion and the Glory. This series is about our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. It's about the last week of his physical life, but it's also about those roughly 30 to 40 days that he walked upon the earth after his resurrection, where he interacted with not only his apostles, but other disciples as well. This lesson was developed by a brother in Christ. His name is Mike Mazzalongo. You see his name on the slide there. He worships at the Edmond, Oklahoma Church of Christ. In this lesson uh, that we're joining in today, we're going to do two things. Number one, we are going to review the last things that Christ Jesus saw and experienced before he suffered and died on the cross. But also we are going to hear the last seven things that Christ Jesus said from the cross. Since the invention of audio and video recordings, uh, rather, we have been able to witness some amazing things, such as the last words and reactions of a pilot before a plane crashed and we got this information after the black box was recovered. Footage of wars being fought and shown in real time on TV news, crimes and gun battles, captured on cell phones and then broadcast across the internet for millions to see. There was no such technology in the days of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus. But nevertheless, what I'm going to attempt to do tonight is um, describe as best I can the last images and the last words experienced by our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus before his death. These were, of course, recorded by eyewitnesses whose accounts, we refer to this as synoptic, eyewitnesses whose accounts have been preserved in their written records. The Bible is our black box. It is our black box, and the, it's so that these events, we are able to read about them and hear about them and know about them. And they happened a long, long time ago. Let us pray. Our blessed heavenly Father, we're so thankful, Father, that our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus was so willing to go to the cross for our sins. And Father, we know that in order for him to go to the cross, Father, and we have the hope that we have, Father, there was required a lot of suffering. And Father, we're so very thankful that he was willing to suffer. But Father, we're thankful for the example that He gave us from the cross as well, Father, where He showed forgiveness, where He made a promise, where He looked out for His mother and His, and a disciple whom He loved, how He finally worked His way around to thinking about Himself for a moment when He cried out to you. And then, as things wound down, He indicated He was thirsty, He indicated it was finished, And then he commended his soul to you. And, Father, let us know the example that he's given us, Father, that because you gave him the power to give his life and to take it up again, you've also given him the power to take ours up again. And, Father, we pray that as we live our lives, Father, we live our lives in such a way that we understand, believe, and trust that Christ Jesus will do the same for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us today. Thank you for allowing us to be here today. May we allow this Wednesday, Father, this midweek, to give us peace of mind, to refresh us, Father, so that we can go out for the remainder of the week, Father, and be the children of God you will have us to be. Father, these things we pray and thank you for in Christ Jesus' most holy name. Amen and amen. Now, I said I was going to do two things here. We were going to, first of all, review what Christ Jesus experienced leading up to his death on the cross. And what we're going to do here is break this down into three scenes, if you will. Look at this as if you're looking at a movie. And the first, the three scenes, of course, would be the Jewish trial, the Roman trial, and the third and final scene would be the crucifixion. Now, in Mark chapter 14, verses uh, 53 through 65, what we will witness there is the Jewish trial. Now, where are we at this point? Jesus has been arrested, and he was arrested by temple and Roman guards, and this was only after Judas had betrayed him with a kiss. And that happened, or took place in the Garden of Gethsemane. The apostles have run away, and they have left him all alone. He is all alone, save for God. He is brought first to Annas, who is a former high priest and the father-in-law, of the current high priest, who's known as Caiaphas. Now, the rationale here is this right here. This was properly done so that they could formulate some type of charge against Jesus, which would then justify a trial. And being successful in doing this, what happened at Exodus Day, they brought Jesus before the Jewish court. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. And Caiaphas, the high priest, the current high priest, what he has done is that he has convened a special inquiry in the the early hours of the morning. There's a problem with this. The problem is this right here. It was illegal to call such an assembly at night in order to prosecute a capital case, but... But their mission to provide some sort of due process, if you will, in order to condemn and execute Jesus, that was a very urgent matter. And a charge against him needed to be formulated. And so, one accuser after another brought forth charges against Christ Jesus, but they were not successful. And the reason they were not successful was because they contradicted each other. And, and finally, Caiaphas, he was he was now at a point where he was utterly frustrated. So Caiaphas himself addressed Jesus and he simply asked him a question. He said, he asked him whether or not he believed that he is the Messiah And Christ Jesus answered in the affirmative. Why is that? Because Christ Jesus cannot lie. Even to protect his own life, Christ Jesus cannot lie. And therefore, he cannot avoid confessing the truth concerning his actual identity. So Mark tells us this right here. That after this, Jesus is then condemned to die based on his own declaration. So think about this for a moment. What all the false accusers could not do to produce their lies, Jesus accomplishes by telling the truth about himself. Think about this also. While Peter was out in the courtyard denying Christ Jesus three times, Christ Jesus accepts his sentence of death while standing bound before all of the Jewish leadership inside the high priest's house. So once the charge against him is set, we'll be looking at uh, Isaiah 50 verse 6 in a moment. Isaiah 50 verse 6. Once the charge against Jesus is set, the night of horror begins as his tormentors spit on him, beat him, mock him, and slap the son of God. And in doing this, the words of Isaiah 50 verse 6 are fulfilled. The Bible says I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation or spitting. That's scene one, the Jewish trial. Scene two, the Roman trial. Uh, the text there is Matthew 27, verses 26 through 31, but I need you to turn to Matthew 27 because we are going to do some reading starting at Matthew 11. But leading up to that, after having falsely accused and tortured Christ Jesus, the Jewish leaders bring Jesus to the Roman governor, Pilate. Why? Because although they had sentenced Christ Jesus to death, only the Roman official could carry out his execution Matthew 27, starting at verse 11, the Bible reads, Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Verse 13, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people anyone prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. Verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priest and the elders Persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and put Jesus to death. Verse 21. But the governor said to them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. Verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, that's the last thing a, a Roman governor want to report to the emperor is that he let his people get out of control, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Now, this part right here, what I'm about to read next, if I'm one of their children, I would be looking at them like, how dare you put me in this mess like this? What did the people say? All the people said, his blood be on us. Thank you, Dad, and on our children as well. Thanks, Dad. I really appreciate that. Pilate, after questioning Jesus, what happened? He realized that there was no evidence or crime deserving of the death penalty. So he vainly tries to free the Lord, but it's unsuccessful. Why? Because the cries of the Jewish mob, which was incited by the priest and other Jewish leaders who were complicit in the effort to have Christ Jesus put to death, threatened to spill over into a riot. They too knew that if that was the last thing that the governor wanted to happen. So Pilate... Uh, In a moment, we're going to be going to uh, Matthew 27, verse 26. Let's go ahead and read it now. Matthew 27, verse 26. The Bible reads, Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So Pilate, in an effort to appease the Jewish people, turns Jesus over to the Roman gods uh, where his ordeal of suffering... It's about to continue. In that verse, we see the word scourge. Scourging. What happened there was this right here. The Romans used these short whips with these bones or metal tips on the end, and they were designed to bring about maximum injury. And the, the other part of this is they had one be, and standing in front of him and one other be, standing behind him. And he was being beat by both sides. And the idea of all of this was to bring about open wounds, to bring about pain. Verse 27, the Bible reads, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus to the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. A cohort. This is a group of 600 to 1,000 men. All were present to watch since this torture was conducted as a a cruel spectacle appealing to bloodlust. Verses 28 and 29. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him. And mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They dressed him in a robe. They put a reed in his hand. They plunged thorns upon his head. All the while they were mocking him and addressing him as king. Then they had the audacity to kneel before him in order to humiliate him even more as they continued to torture him. Think about that for a moment. Hmm. Verses 30 and 31. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. Spat on him took the reeve away as if to say, you have no power. They beat him on the head, driving the thorns further into his skull. All the while they were laughing at him. And then they led him away to his death. Now, you, we've heard the, ter- the term cruel and unnecessary punishment. This was cruel and unnecessary punishment. And the purpose of this unnecessary torture and cruelty by the Roman soldiers was t- Twofold, it was first of all to destroy the prisoner's spirit before destroying his body with crucifixion. But there was another one; it also served as a, a visual object lesson to any other Jews who might have plans to undermine Roman rule and Roman law. We've heard the term empathy before, walking a mile in another man's shoes, or at the end, of the end saying another man's moccasins. How about? Seeing what Christ Jesus saw through his eyes. If we could see through the eyes of Christ Jesus at this point, what we would notice most of all was that there was not a single drop of human pity. There was not a, a single drop of compassion in any of their attitudes. I'm not just talking about the Jewish people that was, that wanted him crucified, but also the Romans who were, who were going about the business of torturing and crucifying him. But you know, I said this in the class last week. Their goal was to completely destroy him psychologically before they destroyed him physically. Remember, that was that one word that we used, that Latin word, patai, means to endure or suffer. It is that one word that is used to accomplish both of these. So we have the first two scenes, the Jewish trial and the Roman trial. Scene three takes us to Luke chapter 23 verses 26 and 27. We'll be reading that in a moment. Scene three, the final scene is the crucifixion. Once the beatings and the mockery are over by the Romans. Now the mockery really isn't over. It's over by the Romans, but not necessarily the Jews. He was led away out of the city to be crucified. Matthew chapter 23 at verse 26. I'm sorry, Luke 23 at verse 26. Luke 23 at verse 26. The Bible reads, When they led him away, they seized the man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. Christ Jesus has gone through a lot. He was tortured and beaten by the Jews. He was tortured and beaten by the Romans. He's bleeding a lot. And he was too weak at this particular time to carry his own cross. And we're not talking about a two-by-four here. We're talking about a good piece of wood, a couple of pieces of wood together here. This thing was about eight feet high. And so Simon of Cyrene, which is modern-day Libya, was pressed into service as this large, noisy crowd made his way to the walls of the city to Golgotha, the place of the skull. What was the purpose there? The actual execution is to take place. Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 and 34. Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 and 34. And when they came to a place called Golgata, which means the place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. Now, when you first look at this, because this, 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 this mixture has a way of, uh, you might say, taking the edge off of it. Uh, I remember when I, when I went to get my uh, cataract surgery, and, uh, yeah, I was a brave kid. I was shaking like a leaf on a tree. And when I walked in, the nurse took my vitals. She said, do you want something to take the edge off? She hadn't finished the word off before I said yes. She brought me that cute little pill. I took it a few minutes later. They took me in this room. The nurse was standing there all cool with her hand down by her side talking to me. Look at the picture up there. The next thing I know, Phew! like, whoa, that was nice. It took the edge off, and that's what this drink was designed to do, designed to do. Prisoners were given wine mixed with mirth to calm them down. But make no mistake about this, the nurse at the at the doctor's office gave me that as for as a sign of mercy and compassion. This was not an act of mercy in Christ Jesus' part here or any other person that was being crucified. It was done so that the condemned would not resist and move they didn't want them moving around while they were placing those nails in their those large nails I should say in their hands and in their feet Jesus refused to drink why because he wanted his mind clear why because he still had things to do even hanging from that cross he still had things to do Matthew 27 the first part of verse 35 The text says, and when they had crucified him, they crucified him. One large nail per hand and per foot. Now, in most cases, death came slowly. And death came as a result of thirst, pain, exhaustion, and asphyxiation. This agony would go on for three or four days before the individual would finally expire. Twenty-seven, thirty-five, b the Bible says they divided his garments among themselves by casting lots. Now, it was a custom of those times that the soldiers who were responsible for the execution share any clothing or valuables left by the ones being crucified. It was almost saying, I'm paying you to crucify me, so whatever valuables I got, you can have. Now in Jesus' case, they gamble for his robe, not wanting to divide it among themselves. And you know how people are when they win stuff? You can imagine the Roman soldier that won, like, yeah, yeah. And he's looking up at Christ Jesus and he's like, okay, I'll wait for you to die. I don't have anywhere to go. Matthew 27, verses 37 through 43. Matthew 27, verses 37 through 43. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Verse 39. And those passing by, they're not done yet. And those passing by were hurtling abuse at him wagging their heads and saying you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days it's amazing they remembered that save yourself if you are the son of God come down from the cross in the same way the chief priests also along with the scribes and the elders were mocking him and saying he saved others he cannot save himself Now, then they told a big lie. If he is the king of the Jews, let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Really? Really? He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. Once crucified, once crucified, the people not yet satisfied with his suffering, continued to hurl insults at Jesus. All the while he hung on that cross, suffering and dying in the most humiliating way. Verse 24 is interesting here of Matthew 27. And you're going to see why it's interesting in a minute when we get over to Luke. Matthew 27 and verse 44 The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So we have even the two thieves that's hanging on the cross on both sides of him. They were doing the same thing as the people in the crowds as if if we show them how we're on their side, they're going to let us come down or something. So beaten, bleeding, degraded and in terrible pain. Jesus looks out over the scene before him. And what does he see? He sees the cruelty of the guards. He sees the hatred of the crowd. He sees the mocking of the religious leaders. He sees the abandonment of his disciples. And in all of this, in all of this, what does he do? He finds the strength to say seven things before he dies on that cross. Number one, as we look at the last seven things that Christ Jesus said from the cross, number one, we see in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. The very first words from his mouth, while he hung on the cross, were not concerning his own pain, it wasn't about the injustice of all of this. It wasn't a cry for help. It wasn't even a curse against his tormentors. But rather, but rather, I plead to God on behalf of his murderers. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That was the first thing he just said. If you turn to Luke chapter 23, we want to start at verse uh 40, I'm sorry, we want to start at verse 39 before we get to the second thing that Christ Jesus said. Luke chapter 23 starting at verse 39 the Bible reads, and one of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself. And us. But the other answered, rebuking him, said, do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. We are indeed here suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong at verse 42. And he said to Christ, and he said to him rather, he said to Christ Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And this brings us to the second thing that Christ Jesus said from the cross, and that was this. Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. So we go back to Matthew chapter 27 and verse 44. We just finished talking about it in the reading. And what does it say? It says that both thieves were cursing him. So here's the question I have for you right here. Here's the question I have for you, and that's this right here. What do you think finally, finally convinced one of them to believe that Christ Jesus was the Son of God? Was it the miracles? I say not. What about the doctrine? I say not. You see, this is what it is. The thief witnessed the power of forgiveness working in love. He heard from Jesus the words of forgiveness toward his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he was moved to seek forgiveness for himself. Now, I've been around for a while, as you guys know. And I've been a Christian since I was in my 30s. And I've heard people come up with all sorts of cute little explanations about the thief on the cross and Christ Jesus saying today you should be with me in paradise. But I want to tell you something right here. The lesson of the thief on the cross is not... That it is never too late to be saved. The lesson of the thief on the cross is not that baptism is not, is not that baptism is not necessary for salvation. So what then is the lesson of the thief from the cross? The lesson of the thief from the cross is this. The power of salvation is love. Love unto death is necessary. And that's what Christ Jesus did. He loved us unto death. This is what draws all men to Christ Jesus, his great love. The third thing that he said, John chapter 19, verse 26. John chapter 19, verse 26. And the Bible reads, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, it brings us to the third thing that he said. He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After Christ Jesus is crucified, from what we just read here, Jesus' mother and John approached the cross, and the Lord puts her into the care of the apostle that he loved. Hmm. We know that Jesus is divine. We know that he's divine not only because of his 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 great miracles, but while the greatest battle for humanity is being waged at Calvary, he has his eyes on all the details he has his eyes on all the needs of everyone there even the care of his earthly mother whom he will no longer be able to look after himself Matthew chapter 27 at verse 46 we come to the fourth thing that Christ Jesus said about the ninth hour that's 3pm about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lama Zabatani, my God, my God, why have thou forsaken me? We look at what has taken place up to this point. Jesus deals with those farther, or farther away from him first, his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Then the thieves, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. His mother, woman, behold your son. His disciple, behold your mother. And finally, Christ Jesus turns his attention to himself. The Lord now grapples with his own suffering. He bears the, the final crushing punishment for the sins of all men, and that is separation from God. And I'll tell you, that is hell. <laughs> to be separated from God any period of time, that is hell, whether on earth or some other location. It was not the physical abuse. It was not the physical pain that atoned for sin. These were natural consequences of all of the sins of all men the ignorance of all men and their hatred of God. And Jesus, Jesus, he experienced these in one way or another throughout his life, throughout his ministry, with it all culminating here at Calvary. The suffering that paid the price for sin was paid on the cross. But it was not the cross itself. It was the separation that Christ Jesus experienced from the Father while on the cross. This terrible agony caused the Son of God to cry out, Eli, Eli, lama sabbatana, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was the punishment reserved for sinners, which Christ Jesus was not. This burden Christ Jesus willingly took upon himself on behalf of all sinners, on behalf of you and me. Luke 19, verse 28. Luke 19, verse 28, we come to the fifth thing that Christ Jesus said. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, To fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. Jesus asked for a drink. Why? Why now? It seems that after having suffered so heroically, he would make it to the end without any physical assistance. I believe that he asked for a drink because he was human. And in doing so demonstrated that he suffered as a human, meaning he was unprotected by some supernatural armor against pain. It hurt. You see, the life that Christ Jesus lived was perfect. Why? Because he was God. But the life that he offered in suffering was human because he was man. John 19, and verse 30 we come to the sixth thing that Christ Jesus said. The Bible reads, Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. That was the sixth thing. Now, don't misunderstand this, it is finished. It didn't say he is dead. It said it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. But see, let's not get carried too quick here because he's not finished yet. From the beginning, God's plan was to send his son to live a perfect life and offer that life in death in order to pay the moral debt of sin, which is accumulated by all men, which in turn condemned everyone to separation from God eternal. Now, to say that again, that is hell. The history of the Jewish nation and the life of Christ Jesus all led to this act, and now it was accomplished once for all. When we believe, when we repent, when we are baptized, we need to understand, accept, and believe that we lay hold of the finished work of atonement. We are told that Christ Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. He is the atoning sacrifice. And Christ Jesus made this on our behalf. All sin has been dealt with forever. The payment for your sins and my sins has been paid in full. When Jesus said it is finished, when Jesus said it is finished, he meant that nothing else needed to be done in order to make restitution for the sins of all mankind. Which takes us to the seventh thing that he said. In a moment, we're going to be reading at John chapter 10, verse 17. John chapter 10, verse 17 the seventh thing that Christ Jesus said we see it at Luke chapter 23 at verse 46 Father into thy hands I commit my spirit these are the last words of Christ Jesus before he dies notice that he does not die struggling to hang on to life as most men do but willingly offers, offers his spirit in death to his father. Why? Because Jesus knew that he had the power to lay it down, but he also knew he had the power to pick it up again. John chapter 10 and verse 17, is, is, this is exactly what the Bible tells us. John chapter 10 and verse 17, the Bible says, For this reason, the father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one is taking it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. In this room we have a lot of people sitting in here who are Christians. And we have people listening to us online who are Christians. So to Christians, I say this right here. Christians do not have the power to lay down our lives and pick them up again. We do, however, have the assurance from the one who does have the power that when our lives are over, he will raise them up once again. Now, I've done several classes here over the years, and you know, every once in a while I get a little bit crazy and talk about logic. You know, I took that class in college, man. I thought that was the best class I ever took. Logic, it's so simple. The logic is this right here. If I know that he has the power to pick up his own life, then I know he certainly has the power to raise up others as well. That's simple logic. It's called an if-then statement. It's, you'd, be, you'd be surprised what we can figure out when it comes to the word of God if we just use logic. If-then In a moment, we're going to be reading um, Romans chapter 6 at verse 3. Romans chapter 6 at verse 3. We often ask ourselves, what would we have done if we were there? If we were transported back to that time, if we were there on that terrible day as Jesus surveyed the view from the cross, where would he have seen us? Well, it's not really necessary to, to go back in time in order to answer that question. You see, we can judge what our position would have been back then by simply looking at our position here today. For example, the Romans, they were unbelievers, unwittingly opposing God and crucifying the Savior. Many today, Or rather today, we have many who do not believe and are in the darkness, manipulated by Satan through their ignorance and opposing God in Christ Jesus without even knowing it. The Jews believed in God, but refused to accept God's word made flesh. Today there are many who claim to know and believe in God but refuse to obey his word and follow Jesus instead of the traditions and doctrines not based on the Bible. You see, we reject God when we when we reject Christ Jesus and we reject Christ Jesus when we reject his word. The disciples, they believed in Jesus but refused to stand with him when under pressure. Jesus said that many would receive the word, but when persecutions came, would quickly fall away. Among our own members today, we have many who have confessed Christ Jesus and have been baptized. And when it comes time to choose between Christ and a bad habit, or a sexual sin, worldly friends, the pressure of family or jobs, they, like the early disciples, run away and watch from a distance the mob who killed the Lord. And then there are those on the cross with Jesus. Only Jesus went to the cross, okay? No one else went with him. Now, it's fair to say had the, had the other apostles gotten caught and confessed Christ Jesus, they too would have had them, themselves across on, on that hill. However, we know that only one was willing to go. Today, all of those who confess his name, who sincerely repent of their sins, are baptized and follow Christ Jesus until death, until he returns, I should say. These are the ones on the cross with Jesus. Romans chapter 6, at verse 3. Romans chapter 6, at verse 3. The Bible reads, Brethren, there was only one place to be back then. Brethren, there's only one place to be today, and that's on the cross with Christ. In various locations around the world, people have built Crosses on high hills that overlook their principal cities. We see that large cross in Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, uh, Montreal, Quebec. If you ever travel to San Diego, you got that big cross on the hill over there. And even in Edmond, Oklahoma. Now, these are wonderful gestures done to pay homage to the Christian heritage of these places. But Christ Jesus does not want the cross on a hill. He doesn't want it on or someplace on a mountain. He wants to cross within us, and he wants us on the cross with him. So based on what you have seen, ask yourselves this question. What group would you have been standing with on that day? The unbelieving Romans? The disobedient Jews? The cowardly disciples? Or are you on that cross with your Savior Christ Jesus? Are you on that cross with your Savior, Christ Jesus? Hmm. Thank you for joining us tonight. Thus far, we have joined Christ Jesus at his last supper. And we saw in Matthew 26 and verse 26 how the focus of those emblems, the lamb and the, the fruit of the vine, changed as Christ Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, we have heard the, the last seven things that Christ Jesus said while he hung on that cross. Join us next week. And invite, a, invite a brethren, invite a friend as we see his last miracle. If you've never been there with him before and you would like to join him on the cross, then repent and be baptized today. And make his cross your own. If you've left that position and would like to rejoin our Lord. Rejoin him and his cross. Then pray for forgiveness as you repent and return. Wherever you are. The Lord calls out to you from his cross. In a moment we'll be having a devotional we ask everyone, if you have the opportunity, I hope you can stay and hear that devotional and, and, and let us worship God together. After that devotional, that would be a time for encouragement and invitation where we have an opportunity to come before the congregation and before God and ask for assistance. If you're joining us remotely, you can uh, you see the contact information on the slide there. You can give us a call. You can send us an email. You can even uh, write us a letter. Thank you for being here this evening, and in a moment we will have the devotional.